0: Howdy doody diddly doo, everyone who's listening. Yes, thanks for tuning in ever faithfully to the Nasty Pasty podcast. I'm your long, idiotic, mostly mentally deficient host, Andy Roberts, but you know that, you've been here before, right? It's nasty because it's related to the video nasties phenomenon of yore, where pitchforks and torches were wielded at the local video shops, accusing them of bewitching our children with the bloops and bleeps of a horror film on VHS. It's pasty, because they're tasty, they have delicious contents, and they're quite quintessentially British. No one else in the world quite understands the idea of a pasty, and I'm sure they equally don't understand why certain horror films were banned as progenitors of the next coming of the devil, whilst others were left entirely alone. I mean, I certainly don't understand that, which is why I've whipped up this weekly controversy myself. I want to know why equally obscure or violent movies weren't caught in the trawl started by the government, so I'm covering similar stuff from the same era that makes you question what exactly the DPP was doing back in the day. After our lengthy discussion last week about rape and revenge films, we're going back to a classic horror genre that most people either love or love a lot. We're back on Zombies this week, but it's a special round of zombie, inverted commas, non-sequels. Now, the official nasties list had its own fair share of zombie flicks, namely Zombie Lake, Oasis of the Zombies, Forest of Fear, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, Frozen Scream, Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, Zombie Creeping Flesh, Dawn of the Mummy, Nightmare City, Zombie Holocaust, uh, Dawn of the Dead, and finally, Zombie Flesh Eaters. Now the last two mentioned are some of the more interesting, which have led to this very episode, so let me explain in full why this is so. Dawn of the Dead was an iconic groundbreaker for the zombie genre. Having established the canon with Night of the Living Dead, Romero caused a quake of life into a new genre whose tremors are still felt to this day, with programs like The Walking Dead, or even games like Call of Duty Zombie Mode. Because it was financed in tandem with Dario Argento, it was also very popular in Italy, having its own release and edit under the title Zombie, with just one eye. Due to this popularity, Lucio Fulci was chosen to helm a new similar film that built upon the strengths of Romero's masterpiece, namely the effective zombie makeup and gory special effects, in an interesting setting. So Fulci took the task on brilliantly, making the film that we know as Zombie Flesh Eaters in the UK or Zombie in the US. In Italy, however, its original title was Zombie 2, which tied it in with Romero's film and cemented its notoriety as an unofficial sequel to that original. Due to the rave success at the box office, Dawn of the Dead and Zombie Flesh Eaters spawned almost their own mini-subgenre, frequently known as the Zombie Series in the US and across the world. Every man and his wife who had a camera was scrabbling to get a piece of this action, and sometimes even completely unrelated projects were marketed as zombie sequels, in order to gain more notice and hopefully a bigger profit. In terms of unofficial sequels and remarketing, the zombie series is probably one of the largest low-budget franchises that there is, especially those which are unofficial in every way. The original Italian series has Zombie, which is Romero's Dawn of the Dead, Zombie 2, which is Zombie Flesh Eaters, and then Zombie 3, which is Zombie Flesh Eaters 2. The British franchise has Zombie Flesh Eaters, it omits Romero's work completely as an entry, before moving on to Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, and then Zombie Flesh Eaters 3, which is an unrelated Italian zombie film called After Death. The German series has exactly the same title format as the Italian series, except Zombie Flesh Eaters is swapped out for Romero's later film Day of the Dead. Fulci's film in Germany was released alone under the title Voodoo. In Thailand, it also has the same format and films as the British series, except that it adds Zombie Flesh Eaters 4, which is actually Killing Birds. The American series is the most varied of all, however, as there are several instances of different films being released under the same title. The first title, Zombie, is Fulci's film, Zombie Flesh Eaters. The US series also omits Romero's Dawn as an entry. Zombie 2 is also Fulci's film again, which was simply retitled and released much later. Several films have been released as Zombie 3, namely Zombie Flesh Eaters 2... And also, Return of the Zombies, which was a Spanish film from 1973. Zombie 4 is After Death, or Zombie Flesh Eaters 3. Uh, Also, Virgin Among the Living Dead was released as this title as well, a low-key erotic film from Jess Franco. Killing Birds was released as Zombie 5, and so was Revenge in the House of Usher, another non-zombie-related film from Jess Franco. Further iterations were released, such as Zombie 6, which is Joe D'Amato's Absurd, retitled, as is his earlier work Anthropophagus, which was retitled as Zombie 7. Across the world, other non-related titles have also been remarketed as sequels to these duo of films, such as Burial Ground, uh, Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, Nightmare City, and Zombie Holocaust, all being released in various territories as Zombie 3. And there's also 1982's Panic, which was retitled as Zombie 4 in Greece. Today's episode will therefore focus on two of these films that were remarketed as unofficial sequels to Romero's and Fulci's initial Italian venture. They are Killing Birds from 1987, titled variously as Raptors, Zombie 5 or Zombie Flesh Eaters 4. The other is 1982's Panic, which is also known as Bacterian or Zombie 4. I'm not quite sure to expect from these two other than zombies of some description. So, without further ado, let's start with Killing Birds. An army veteran arrives home after being away for a long time, only to discover that his wife is in bed with another man. Reacting rather badly, he slits the man's throat before doing the same to his wife. His father and mother-in-law are also killed, but the man spares his baby son from the slaughter. He then releases all the family's collection of birds, one of which suddenly attacks him and pecks his eyes out. He takes his child to a hospital and has it taken into care. Many years later, student Steve learns that he's been given a grant to locate a rare bird, the ivory-billed woodpecker, before it is declared extinct. Other students, Paul, his assistant Mary, college paper writer Anne, Rob and Jennifer join the expedition and set off together, along with an officer called Brian, who's meant to watch over the trip. For their first port of call, they meet up with a man called Frederick Brown, the veteran from the start of the film who lives alone in Louisiana, purportedly one of the last people to have seen the rare bird, despite the fact that he's now blind. He gives them a document describing his old family home, which the students head to in order to further their research. On their way, the group find an abandoned car with a rotten corpse inside, just before they come across Brown's old house, now in disrepair and empty. The group enter and settle in, only for Anne and Mary to discover a photograph which shows Brown and his wife, only to then be coloured over when she looks back at it. Steve wanders the home himself, and appears to have lost the others, spying a bed with fresh blood in it, a vision of Brown walking around, the aviary from the film's beginning now full of birds, a zombified woman who offers Steve a baby's bottle, and a vision of Anne pinned to the wall with her throat slit. With dark approaching, Brian suggests that they stay the night, much to Steve's dislike. Rob and Brian then start the generator up, and the group winds down for the night – Mary has a nightmare about having her throat slit by Brown and wakes up to see Jennifer enter the empty aviary from before and sees her suddenly flee from something. A shambling corpse stalks Jennifer and chases her through the house, only for another one to grab her from behind and kill her by bashing her head against a wall. Mary informs the others and they split up to look for her. As Brian explores the basement, he notices that the generator has leaked fuel, and upon exiting, a flame inexplicably follows him through the trail of gasoline, igniting him and burning him to death in front of Steve and Rob. Mary finds Jennifer's corpse dumped outside the house, causing the group to just flee the entire situation. Rob goes back into the house to retrieve his computer, and then the group enter their car, starting to hotwire it. The zombies arrive just as they are about to start the car, smashing through the rear window and ripping Mary's throat open as the car drives forward. The group flee from the car and back into the house, barricading the doors. And when the lights go out, Rob and Paul go to check the generator. As they refill it, the machine suddenly sputters into life, trapping the medallion that Rob is wearing and slowly strangling him and cutting into his neck, dragging him into the machine and killing him. Rob's computer then displays the message, Welcome Home Steve, as Anne and Steve look at it, only for Paul to return with the news of Rob's demise. A zombie bursts through the wall and attacks Anne, as Steve fights them off with a gun. And the trio then run upstairs and into the attic to hide from their pursuers, only for another zombie to bust through the roof and kill Paul by tearing his neck open. Remaining hidden in the attic, the sun soon rises, and Steve and Anne emerge to escape. Hearing Brown in the house, he calls Steve his son and explains that what he's what the zombies really want, and for them to leave the danger. Brown remains in the house while the pair flee, only to stop when birds swarm the entire house as Brown's screams are heard. Oh. Something's happened to Jennifer. What? Why? I saw her going the her, but she never came out. So? I don't know. Oh, come on, give me a break. And up. sleep. Oh, my god. Wake, Wake up. She's been having hallucinations. You know the what fog. fog. It's real dark. Are you sure it was Jennifer? Oh. I'm sure it was Jennifer. I saw her from the window. What's all this about Jennifer? Mary thinks she saw her going to the porch. I did! Well, maybe she couldn't sleep. What's this, a party? I don't want to miss anything. Here, yeah. some party. I couldn't sleep either. I don't know. Something about this place. You see? Well, why don't we go look for her? Then we can all get some sleep. Hmm? Come hmm. It's funny how the name of a film can conjure up specific images. With a title like Killing Birds, or even Raptors, you'd be forgiven for thinking it to be a film about birds of prey. Which it sort of is, but not in the way that you'd expect. If seeing it under the title Zombie 5 you'd expect it to be about zombies, which, again, it is, but not quite in the way that you're thinking. Killing Birds, or its original title, Uccelli Assassini, is a confused affair from 1987, directed by Claudio Lattanzi. Confused mainly because its wealth of titles don't really paint a picture of what it actually is, and when you get to see the film, it's truly bizarre just how many genres are bleeding into each other. When the film starts, you get a killer veteran returning home to find his wife doing the dirty on him, which understandably annoys him, and he goes around with his combat knife, slicing and dicing a few throats whilst his face is obscured. It's rather simple, but it's nothing too outside of the vein of something like The Prowler, or Friday the 13th, so you feel like you're sort of in for a slasher-type picture. Then, the aviary of birds amidst this setting suddenly come to the fore, and attack our murdering army guy, pecking his eyeballs out. So then you start to wonder, is this a killer bird-type film, a la Birds of Prey or The Birds, especially since there's quite a bit of mismatched stock footage of birds thrust into proceedings. And then we get a group of generic students for roughly 50 minutes of the runtime, goofing around with some very tonally inappropriate music playing. There's also a badly dubbed harmonica played by the cop, Brian, with an 80s montage of very happy students frolicking about. To this degree, you're wondering where most of the horror is, especially after the gory setup. Nothing really much happens for a while. And then, when our intrepid group gets to the house, we get what can only be described as a haunted house trope, with intense hallucinations, bloody visions, and nightmares hounding our protagonists. Then, around the 55-minute mark, we get a zombie turning up to terrorise Jennifer, quite brutally bashing her head in, and then the rest of the film becomes an equal parts haunted house movie mixed with a showdown of zombies attacking. It's really rather confusing as to what the film is actually supposed to be, even more so when there's supposedly a plot to follow. The problem is that nothing is explained in this film, even when characters have dialogue to spout. It's never quite clear what exactly is going on. Brown explains towards the film's climax that they're after me, not you, and they feed on fear. It's not clear who he's talking about. The zombies, of which there are only three or four on screen at one time, can be assumed to be Brown's victims that have some sort of stake over their final resting place, and they've risen to get their revenge on their killer. If that's the case, why are they attacking random people? And for the record, how did they get reanimated in the first place? The second thing is, what exactly do the birds have to do with it all? The fact that they're focused on so much, in both the film's title and the film's opening, it must mean something. When Brown screams at the film's conclusion, a flock of birds is clearly swarming the entire house. Are these the ones who want Brown for revenge? Are the birds somehow responsible for the supernatural goings-on? And then there's the house itself. There's clearly a haunted house vibe going on, but with seemingly no reason for it to be animate in this way. If it's haunted by ghosts of Brown's victims, ghosts don't tend to turn up as maggot-infested corpses, as well as spiritually controlling a house. And if the birds are responsible, why on earth would birds choose to exert some supernatural influence over a human dwelling? The film's plot breeds much more questions rather than it offers any real answers, and it's one of those films that you really wonder if even the filmmakers knew what the plot was. The flimsiness of the plot is actually damaged further by the film's characters – all of whom are pretty much forgettable as rather flatly portrayed sounding boards for the film's script. The characters' only distinctive features are the lines that they speak, such as stupidly labelling a generator several centuries old, or getting out a computer as maybe it has some suggestions that will tell us how to get out of here. Characters frequently demonstrate how to be a twat to Anne's character, simply because of some unspoken incident between her and Steve, and there's often a disconnect with what people are saying and what actually happens, such as Rob saying that he needs his animation to work properly, even though his juvenile animation of two stick figures having it up the shitter is quite clear in its depiction, or even the example of Rob having died by being dragged into the generator gears, and Paul explaining his death as they got him. This last example reminds me of the other defining feature of the film's characters in action. Nobody in this film does anything realistically or normally, even though you 'd expect them to. I mean, why on earth would Brown spare his only child when he's clearly he 's clearly got no problem with killing other innocent people, for example his parents in law How is he able to bring Steve to an orphanage without revealing he's the one who's murdered his entire family? Why don't the group turn back when they encounter a dead body on the way to the house, especially then when one of them is a police officer? Why does Rob go back into the house to get his computer, but not think to get the car keys instead? Why does Paul do nothing to help Rob when his medallion is caught in the generator? Why do the zombies not get in further after killing Paul in order to get Steve and Anne? There's just so much contrivance in order to get from one point to another that it gets incredibly distracting and it utterly beggars belief at times. I began to think that the reason that nothing happened until much later in the film is because the characters were just so incompetent that there'd be nothing left of them quite quickly and you'd have an incredibly short film. I'm aware that I've basically verbally trashed this film up until this point, but I have to be honest, I really can't say I hated it. There's certainly parts of it that I like, namely that the film's special gore effects are at least displayed with gusto. Granted, the throat cuttings in the film seem to be achieved using the same exact appliance, but there's around four throat slittings altogether in the space of ten minutes, which is rather uncommon in a film like this. Jennifer is quite nastily battered to death, Mary has her neck ripped apart in a rather cheap but commendable effort. Despite how silly it is, Rob's grinding death in the generator is quite prolonged and graphic, and Brown's eyes being pecked out was also quite gorgorily enjoyable. At least when stuff was happening, it wasn't off-screen, or in the dark, which is always a plus for me. And secondly, the film Zombies, while they were a little underutilized, considering this was sold as a zombie sequel, they actually look quite interesting. They're almost mummified, very dry-looking, and they're wreathed in cobwebs. Very similar to the dry look of the zombies from Bianchi's burial ground. In fact, the only poor effects in this film are the computer-based ones. I mean, the photograph fading black was quite cringe-inducing, as were the words appearing on Rob's supposedly clairvoyant and free-thinking computer. Lastly, while the cocktail of genres is a little hard to drink at times, it does open your eyes to the kind of influences that the film homages. And by that, I mean rip-off with impunity. There's clear parallels to the cinematography of Evil Dead, like the shot of Mary and Paul in the car looking out onto the foggy grounds, very similar to Ash and Cheryl looking out at the demolished bridge in Sam Raimi's film, and Cheryl's demon form being trapped in the cellar is also referenced in the point of view of a zombie trying to gain access to the attic, where Paul, Steve and Anna are hiding. There's also more than a few references to Fulci's haunted house opus, The Beyond, with the presence of Brown as a bit of a male version of Emily, minus the dog of course, Uh, the hallucinatory shot of Anne crucified on the wall, it's pretty much a carbon copy of the artist Schweik from Fulci's film, and even the fact that the house used in Killing Birds is actually the same as the house from The Beyond. Both films' plots are also set in Louisiana, cementing this connection to Fulci's work as more than just a mere reference. There's also elements of Romero's Night of the Living Dead, being revived in moments like the generator going out, uh, the subsequent barricading of the doors, and the emergence of the last two characters having waited until morning. Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus is also directly referenced in Paul's attack. He's killed in pretty much the exact same way as Rita from D'Amato's Gut Muncher. All these things, which clearly don't automatically make Killing Birds a good film, they certainly keep one entertained if you can survive the huge gap of nothing in the middle of the film. Just don't go expecting much, and you may actually end up liking it, at least a little. Tragically, not many of the actors who worked in this were ever seen again. Not surprisingly, though, because most of their lack of acting chops, but there are a few oddities of note. First up is Anne, who was played by German actress Laura Wendell. We've encountered Wendell before when we covered Ghost House, but she's most recognisable as a victim from Dario Argento's Tenebrae. But she'd also been in My Dear Killer and The Perfume of the Lady in Black. Brown was played by a rather prolific actor, Robert Vaughan, who'd been in The Man from U.N.C.L.E., uh, The Towering Inferno, Demon Seed and Superman 3. He unfortunately passed away just a few years back, and some of his final credits include Little Britain USA and Coronation Street, which was a British soap. Mary was played by Leslie Cumming, encountered before when we watched Witchcraft, and Lynn Gathright, who played the meek Jennifer, she also cropped up recently on American Horror Story. This is pretty much it for the actors. This was a lot of people's only credit, really. It was also director Claudio Latanzi's only sole directing credit, and even then, that's sort a of little push. Latanzi was more of an assistant director. He worked on Dario Argento's World of Horror, The Church, uh, Michelle Soavi's Stage Fright, Interzone, and also Ghost House. It is heavily implied that Latanzi was actually only half the director on this picture, too, and that the more capable Joe D'Amato was actually the assistant director on this film. It's not too hard to imagine, as D'Amato was the producer and also the cinematographer on this film as well. The film was written by Sheila Goldberg, who'd also written Ruggiero Diodato's Body Count, A Stage Fright, Ghost House, and A Mock Train, which was released as Beyond the Door 3. She was also a dialogue coach on Phenomena, Ghost House, and Luigi Cozzi's version of The Black Cat. She was assisted by Danielle Stroper who'd worked on Lamberto Barba's Delirium, uh, Witchcraft, which we've covered before, uh, House of Witchcraft, House of Clocks, Troll 3, and also The Wax Mask. Now, the music was also done by someone we've heard before on Nasty Pasty, uh, Carlo Maria Cordio, who did the music on Pieces, as well as Absurd, Enigma, Troll 2, and a lot of D'Amato's filmography. The editor, too, Kathleen Stretton. She also worked on Ghost House, as well as Stage Fright, and Interzone. The film's special effects were done by Robert Gold, again, we've mentioned before on Ghost House, but he was assisted this time by Harry Harris III, who was a stunt person who worked on Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme, a Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh, and the 2000 remake of Shaft with Samuel L. Jackson. The film was released in 1987, way after the Nasties' debacle in the early 80s. Strangely though, the film only had a VHS release in Italy, and subsequent VHS releases in France and the Netherlands in 1989. The film has actually never made it to UK shores at all, meaning it's due a release. That's if anyone actually likes the film enough. I mean, it's got a release on DVD in the US, of course, under its Zombie 5 title, so it is available for dedicated collectors, but. Not many others, and as far as I can see, there doesn't seem to be any censorship issues with the film at all. So, that's Killing Birds done. Let's get on to our next non-sequel, 1982's Panic. In a laboratory called Chemical, some lab rats go berserk and attack each other, causing scientist Jane Blake to declare an emergency. A team of scientists respond to the scene, only for one of them to become contaminated by the rat's corpses, burning his face. The director of the laboratory, Milton, wishes to keep a lid on the affair, but Jane insists that she will only do so with the permission of Professor Adams. Meanwhile, a couple making love in a car is suddenly attacked by a strange figure who immediately drags the man out and kills him before moving on to the woman. Back at the lab, Jane mentions that Adams was experimenting with a new vaccine for the rats, which seemed to only increase their aggressiveness, but she's unsure of the end results. An agent named Kirk is put on the case of the accident, which seems suspect to almost everybody, and he asks Jane about the disappearance of Adams. Teaming up with her, Kirk checks his house out and finds that the seemingly normal, except for a gun dropped outside and his military jacket missing. Investigating a blood splatter, Jane is then shocked from a corpse dropping from the ceiling, apparently one of Adam's security officers. Meanwhile, the killer is wandering through the streets and goes into a house, bursting in on a woman having a shower and suddenly killing her. All the recent bodies are noted by the coroner to have very little blood left, but a strange green substance left behind on them that seems to be corrosive. From this, he hypothesises that the killer is some sort of irradiated mutant that's drinking his victim's blood. A colonel called Rutledge... Kirk Superior, is informed by a colleague, Sir Charles, that Adams was working on an indestructible virus for use in German warfare, and that he was near completion on it before he disappeared, leading Charles to consider an emergency plan to destroy the town in order to contain the possible contamination. Investigating a derelict building, Kirk discovers an incredibly large mutant rat crawling through a sewer drain, just as the killer, too, is revealed to be using the sewers in order to travel through town. The strange killer ascends to ground level and wanders into a cinema, suddenly disturbed by the film's loud soundtrack. The creature then tears through the screen and attacks the audience, dragging one female victim away and devouring her in a back room. Kirk and the police arrive at the scene, discovering the dead girl and more of the killer's strange residue. Kirk suggests to Jane that Adams is in fact the mutant roaming around, but she is very sceptical. The creature then attacks a church with the priest desperately trying to hide the children in his charge. He sends them all through a small vent out of harm's way, but is then killed by the beast when he tries to defend himself with a candlestick, forcing the police sergeant to declare that the whole town is now under quarantine measures. Milton is attacked in his home by the creature and killed, prompting Kirk to notice that he gained access through the sewers. Ending up in the cinema again from earlier, Kirk encounters the monster, and barely manages to escape with his life. Jane finally comes up with an antidote for the virus, potentially saving Adams, but Kirk reveals that the town is to be bombed in little over an hour, eliminating the chance to cure Adams of his condition. After sealing some of the sewers' exits, Kirk and the police enter the sewers in order to flush him out. Believing she can save him anyway, Jane enters the derelict building from before, with the vaccine that she's made, and she encounters Adams who's remarkably able to understand her, but he begs her to kill him. Suddenly, Kirk appears and attacks Adams with a fire extinguisher before he is shot by the police sergeant. Getting the upper hand once more, Kirk sprays him continuously with the fire extinguisher until finally he suffocates, finally expiring. News gets back to the bombing pilots, who then abandon their idea to destroy the entire town. This substance we found on Henry Miles' body has a completely anomalous cell structure. That isn't the point, Jane. In my opinion, there's a connection between the murders, the accident in the laboratory, and the disappearance of Professor Adams. Perhaps, but you have to prove it. Look, Jane, you have to cooperate with me if we're going to find out the truth. And that's more important than the good name of your dear Professor Adams. Mr. Milton wants to see you. All right. You wanted to see me, sir? Yes, come in. Captain Kirk, Sergeant O'Brien. How do you do? I've been told the whole story, Captain. I hope I can be of help. Not alone, are you? I'm sorry, but I only have two men under me. And they're busy chasing a homicidal maniac. And you can't be of much. Help, Thank you, can you, Sergeant, for taking the suggestion I gave you. We must avoid a panic. And above all else, we mustn't attract journalists looking for sensational news. Yes, but I think the people should be warned. Yes, but perhaps later on. And Captain, remember the overriding necessity that the Plurima plan remain a matter of utmost secrecy. Come in. I didn't know you were busy. No, no, not at all. How are you, Captain? Fine, thanks. Ah, Sergeant O'Brien. How do you do? The computer report is finished, but perhaps it's better if I come back later. No, no, you can speak freely. I don't want these gentlemen to think we have anything to hide. All right. We had the computer set up to analyze all the information available concerning Professor Adams' experiments with the new vaccine, and, as expected, The reply was, insufficient data. Insufficient? If you would like, you can check it yourself. (laughs) If you gentlemen would excuse me, come along, Professor. Dreadful actors, don't you agree? What do you mean? Oh, boy. After killing birds, I thought I'd at least see some improvement on the next film. Who could have foreseen that I could have been so wrong? Panic was originally released as Bacteria, or Bacterian in the original language, but has also been known as Monster of Blood or Nightmare Killing. But regardless of the title, the film remains quite the insipid affair anyway. It's hard to critique a film after watching something like Killing Birds, and ending up at the conclusion that the previous film was actually a masterpiece compared to this one. Panic is just painfully generic, woefully inept in terms of pacing and characters, and is sadly both too dry in tone and in the sanguine bloodletting. But we'll break this down in a little more detail. The film was released as Zombie 4, so you'd expect a zombie, or zombies, within the plot. Now, I've no problem whatsoever with a single zombie that maybe isn't quite a normal zombie in the traditional sense. I mean, Zombie Holocaust's undead husks were not strictly dead as were the irradiated crazies from Lenzi's Nightmare City. The spectral antagonist in Let's Scare Jessica to Death was pretty zombie-like in Execution, or even the mysterious Dr. Freudstein functioning as rather an immortal cadaver who slashes people up like a jello-slayer. The problem with panic isn't that the zombie is in fact an infected scientist – it isn't that the makeup effects look like a pizza with a tuft of cobwebs as hair. It isn't even the element that he drinks blood and shambles around because his body's deteriorating due to radiation. It's the fact that it's just not deplorable enough to be interesting. The zombie makeup I actually found rather charming, but the long wait time until we actually get to see it was less charming. The horrible details of the bodies when our zombie friend is finished eating was great, but not seeing much of the carnage on screen was not great. The fact that it's not your traditional zombie walking around munching people is fine. But the hollow mystery of trying to pretend it's not the missing scientist who we know about from the beginning, and then allowing the previously mute flesh eater to suddenly develop a voice at the end, is just a little stupid. It just goes to show that you can have all the ingredients there, like an irradiated humanoid who eats flesh, or in this case drinks blood, roaming a city, but subtract a few minor details like actually showing off the graphic makeup or gore effects or a continuity between what's actually wrong with him, you're left with rather an unsatisfying result. There's a difference between the revenants and Killing Birds, for example, as no attempt is made to explain them at all, which, while it can seem a bit cheap, it at least allows them to escape any close scrutiny on the idea. But Professor Adams is a walking patient zero of this deadly contagion, and the whole film hinges on this as a plot point – As our leading Lady Jane tries to come up with a vaccine, the entire army barricades off the town for fear of spreading the virus, and the whole town's about to be nuked, for God's sake. If there's no continuity or clarity with what the creature actually is or does, or the film is just unwilling to show off the visceral danger of such a beast, why should we care? All you're left with, then, ultimately, is a cast of characters who warn about the dangerous situation they're in, and an overkill bunch of soldiers who shoot at civilians, and plan to vaporise a British town in the style of Raccoon City from Resident Evil. The aforementioned generic nature of the film really wouldn't be such a grave sin if the film was awash with plasma, but it's just not. There's some occasional gory moments, of course, but they're executed in such an occlusive way as to obscure most of the action – Not helping matters is the fact that the only print of the film I can find is incredibly dark, which only compounds the lack of visual violence even more. We're told that the bodies are so torn up that they're barely recognisable as human, and and that their blood has been mostly consumed. It's just all the more shameful, then, that we don't actually get to enjoy these visceral thrills, and are simply left with just a few lines to paint the picture. Sometimes we don't even get to see any violence, such as the attack on the woman in the shower, which is perpetrated off-screen, or the American werewolf-in-London-style assault on the cinema, which has black cutaways in between the savagery. It's a huge mistake when the plot leaves so much to be desired, and that scene in particular had so much potential. The special makeup effects of the creature are admittedly simple, but it would have been just so much nicer to see them in full a lot earlier. In Burial Ground the zombie makeups are sometimes hokey and at other times they're quite effective. But the difference is that the zombies are shown in full daylight with all of their glory on show. People who watch these sorts of films they don't care about the banality or the silly effects. They care about the enthusiasm, the panache and the gusto. And I'll keep saying it, but Killing Birds makes absolutely no sense. It has the same awful characters and script as Panic, but The soul is there, the desire to entertain is there, irrespective of the not-so-special effects. You don't mind that, that they're actually trying. I just can't forgive a complete lack of gore when it will be the only thing saving a film from complete redundancy. The writing on the film, too, is incredibly dry, almost completely devoid of humour and focused on half-arsedly pondering over already boring plot points. Case in point, the coroner, who after seeing a couple of dead bodies, is able to accurately deduce that the killer is both a mutant and a blood drinker. Other than the expectations of the script, there's no way that you'd be able to conclude this in any manner, especially so quickly and so matter-of-factly as he does. I kind of stared at my screen in the same way as the desk sergeant stares blankly back at him. The only humour in the film as well is pretty much unintentional, like the fact that David Warbeck's character is seriously called Captain Kirk, or that a tart in the cinema is willing to have sex with a guy if he goes down the street and gets her an ice cream. Kirk also runs off a variety of quips, like, according to you, the professor is currently struggling with a trout, or exclaiming, I owe you a beer, after being saved from being mauled by the creature. My personal favourite, though, was dreadful actors, don't you think? Simply because it mirrored my thoughts exactly. The editing on the film is no better either. Demonstrated no clearer in the opening scene, where we're shown lab rats fighting. Then it cuts to Jane issuing an emergency. Then some hazmat-suited figures going into a room. Then a close-up shot of the dead rats. And then suddenly to one of the men reacting badly to a sizzling fluid that splashed on his face. And then it cuts right to the whole... the contagion thing, you know, that's been released, and that Professor Adams is missing... If the one in the suit who's splashed with the fluid is Adams, why on earth doesn't Jane mention that he was injured? And why does everyone think that he's on a fishing trip when he was clearly in the building? And if it wasn't Adams, then why are we seeing the guy being splashed with corrosive fluid in the first place? All in all, panic is an entirely ordinary, rather inept piece of filmmaking that probably wouldn't survive today if it weren't tangentially tied to the zombie franchise so that mugs like me could stumble on it. Captain Kirk is not played by William Shatner, but the lovable David Warbeck, famous for his role alongside Catriona McCall in Fulci's The Beyond. It's hard to see a man of his talents be wasted here, if I'm honest. Not only was he the charming Cadbury's Milk tray man, but he was also in line to be the next Bond at one point. He was also in another video nasty, Antonio Margariti's The Last Hunter, as well as Fulci's Black Cat, Formula for a Murder, and Ratman, I was very saddened when I realised that he'd passed away, many years before I even knew of him. It seems that by everyone's testimony, he was an amazing man with a great deal of humour and goodwill. The rather perfunctory character of Jane was played by Swedish actress Janet Agron, who we've seen before in Hands of Steel. She, of course, had been in Fulci's City of the Living Dead and the video Nasty Eaten Alive from Umberto Lenzi. The Marauding Corpse, Professor Adams, was actually played by someone also familiar to Nasty Pasty, Roberto Ricci, who apart from doing the special effects on the aforementioned Hands of Steel, he also played Professor Correns in Against Nature, or The Green Inferno, way back when we covered it last year. A chap called Avidio Taito was also in the film, but he's uncredited with a role, so I don't know actually who that would be. But regardless, he was in the art department of Fulci's City of the Living Dead, and he also did the special effects on Devilfish, which was sometimes known as Devouring Waves. The drunkard who gets attacked near the bushes was played by Fabian Condi, who had a minor role in the Spanish horror, Who Could Kill a Child, whilst Milton was played by Franco Russell, who we've seen before in a small part in Barber's Blood and Black Lace. Another interesting face is that of Goffredo Unger, who we've mentioned before, also on Blood and Black Lace. He was a multi-talented crewman who dabbled in assisting the director, special effects and stunts. But most video-nasty veterans would recognise him as the bearded guy who has his forehead sawed through by George Eastman in Absurd. The director, Tonino Ricci, who's credited as Anthony Richmond, had not done much other than the rather bottom-of-the-barrel stuff like Night of the Sharks, um, Thor the Conqueror, Raiders of the Magic Ivory, stuff like that. The writer, however, Victor Andrus Katayna, had previously written Kill Django, Kill First, and A Fistful of Dollars, whilst his partner on the film, Jamie Comas Gill, also worked on Fistful of Dollars, as well as A Man Called Rage and Savannah, Carnal Violence. The producer was Marcello Romeo, who did also did Thor the Conqueror and the Giallo picture, The Case of the Bloody Iris. The music was done by someone also quite familiar, composer Marcello Giambini, who was in Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus, who we've, and we also mentioned it before on the Terror Express episode. The cinematography was executed by Giovanni Bergamini, who worked on quite a few well-known Italian genre films like. 1966's original Django, uh, Don't Torture a Duckling, Exterminators of the Year 3000, Cannibal Ferox, and most of Ricci's later work. Editing maestro Vincenzo Tomasi also worked on this, quite a prolific video-nasty crewman who we've experienced before on Papaya, Love Goddess of the Cannibals. The special effects, too, were done by Reno Carboni who'd surprisingly worked with Sergio Leone on For A Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. He was assisted on this film by Dino Galliano, who we've also mentioned before on Four Flies on Grey Velvet. With two main headliners like Warbeck and Agron, and a crew of clearly capable professional Italians behind the camera, it's just ever-increasingly sad and a mystery as to why this film is so dreck. With some of the names involved, it really ought to have been a great ride – but alas, t'was not to be. Even for an Italian-Spanish B-movie, the film had quite dire distribution in the early 80s, and it wasn't released theatrically outside of Italy, Spain or France. Its debut in America was actually on television, so you can kind of see the quality that we're speaking of here. Although, rather shockingly, the film had not one, but two VHS releases in the UK in 1982, one from Broadway Films and one from Video Independent Productions, the same company who were in trouble for releasing Anthropophagus. And the VHS cover is also rather paradoxically enticing, and it paints the film to look way more exciting than, unfortunately, it actually is. It might have attracted attention, but quite frankly there was little chance that this would have caused any controversy due to its, well, very mild scenes. It's not really been released in the UK since, meaning that... Actually, never mind... I'm not actually sure if cleaning this film up and giving it a pristine release would actually save it. Although, having said that, maybe there were gore effects that I just couldn't see due to the extremely dark print, so maybe it would be slightly better with an updated release, but I'm not going to hold my breath on that, though. That was that film. Quite literally, panic over. And it's the end of our episode for this week, chaps and chapettes. So thanks as ever for listening. I'm sorry that the film qualities were a little dreck this week. I'm sure I can make it up to you, though. Because we've actually got another bonus episode for you coming out in the next day or two, focusing on the remainder of the Zombie Flesh Eaters series. So these will be Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, or Zombie 3, as the original Italian is... And also Zombie Flesh Eaters 3, which is also known as Zombie 4, or After Death. An extra treat for you, of course, but next week's official episode will be on something that I'm really looking forward to, and it's sort of related. While this week it was rip-offs of Dawn of the Dead and Zombie Flesh Eaters, next week we're tackling two different types of rip-offs. Those of Ridley Scott's Alien. So they are Alien Terror, which is also known as Alien 2 on Earth, as well as Shocking Dark, which is sometimes known as Alienators or Terminator 2. Yes, it's going to be that kind of episode. Until we delve into that huge vat of cheese, take good care of yourselves, and thanks again for listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast if you do want to get in touch, there's all the usual channels, we're on Facebook we're also on Twitter, just search Nasty Pasty Podcast or you can email some feedback in, I mean I'd love to hear from people, if anyone's out there anyone out there listening um, my the email address is nastypastypodcast at gmail.com but until that time, I'll see you soon and ta-ta for now